So Shabani, describe for me what it is like in Hong Kong right now. I really do think that the most surreal part of all of this is that we're watching the world open up while we are experiencing COVID for the first time in many ways. That's Shabani Matani. She is the Post's bureau chief in Hong Kong, where the COVID death rate is currently the highest in the developed world. And meanwhile, in the U.S. and other countries, people are returning to normal life. And so people are like going back to their life. They're planning, you know, weddings. They're planning travel. They're doing all these things for the first time in two years. And we are for the first time in two years seeing, you know, morgues pile up and you know, thinking, what do we do if we get sick because we can't go to the hospital because they've all been converted to COVID wards, right? And I think it's it's caused a lot of anxiety. It's caused people to feel very, very trapped. And it's caused people to feel like really there's there's no future here because th- this failure in government policy has, has made it this way. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, March 15th. Today, how Hong Kong's COVID response has become a victim of its own success. Early in the pandemic, Hong Kong was forced to adopt Beijing's policy of fully eradicating COVID, what's called the zero COVID policy. But unlike China, Hong Kong doesn't have the authoritarian style of government that allows for strict lockdowns and required vaccinations. So when the Omicron variant came along, the vast majority of older people were unvaccinated. So almost 4,000 people now have died um, from COVID here in Hong Kong, most of them elderly. And so that's actually a bigger number than the total number of people who died in Wuhan when the pandemic first hit China uh, in early 2020. And because Hong Kong is such a small city, right, with only about 7 million people, that rate is actually even much higher than, say, Italy or New York City at the height or even the the, the start of the pandemic when things were, were really, really bad. And what's so surprising about this is that Hong Kong had been held up basically since the beginning of the pandemic as this poster child for how to handle COVID responsibly. So I'm wondering, like, what happened? Like, where did things go wrong? Right. Absolutely. I mean, I remember in early 2020, right, when all our friends were struggling to get masks and supplies in the United States, like we were rushing to the post office to send surgical masks, gloves, hand sanitizer to the U.S., right? Things were Mm. so good here. It was like COVID never really existed these past two years until recently. We've never had those images of body bags. We've never had those images of hospitals overflowing and people having to to be outside. And, you know, just in terms of what went wrong, I think it was much easier for Hong Kong to hold on to zero COVID, which is the policy that follows the policy in mainland China, basically eliminating the virus as opposed to mitigating its impact or learning to live with it. It was much easier to hang on to that policy when the variants were not that transmissible, right? And when when the variants could be controlled by social distancing and, you know, by having schools um, shut for a while, having restaurants not have dine-in or whatever. And because Hong Kong was so successful, it kind of became a victim of its own success. Well, what do you mean by that? Yeah, so the problem with zero COVID is that people 
don't believe there's COVID or don't see the risk of COVID. So with zero COVID, it was hmm. like, why do we need to get vaccinated now or today? Because it's not really an urgent issue, right? It's not really something that's pressing. Oh, interesting. And I think the most problematic part of all of this was that the most vulnerable population, the elderly, really never saw the need to get vaccinated or were particularly vulnerable to misinformation or disinformation and just thought that they would die mm. simply if they got the vaccine. And so that has been a real gap in policy. And, you know, the government never really focused on, you know, combating that misinformation, on getting over that hurdle and mm. trying to get people vaccinated. And can I ask, what, what was the vaccination rate previous to when this recent surge started? So among the sort of teen to, say, 60s group, it was really quite high. It was about 70%. It was among the 70s and above group that it was really, really low. So mm. it was mostly the elderly who weren't getting vaccinated because early on in the, the pandemic here in, in Hong Kong, the government gave out too much information almost. So whenever there was an adverse reaction from the vaccine, say whenever somebody in their 80s got Sinovac or, or the Pfizer vaccine and had like to go to hospital or had, you know, like a heart attack or whatever, they reported every single one of those, even if there was a tenuous link to the vaccination itself. Mm -hmm. if, if it, even if it was unclear that, that totally. the vaccine was related at all to what had resulted in them being hospitalized. Yeah, and it just contributed to all this fear and all this uncertainty. And really, like now when you see the death rate or the death toll, it's concentrated among the elderly, right? Like, I mean, it's really swept through mm. care homes, elderly facilities. And, you know, in Hong Kong, the elderly is such a big part of the population. I mean, we have an aging population here. So that's why it's been so dramatic, right? These these numbers. So, so what is Hong Kong trying to do about it? What measures are being taken to try to get more people vaccinated and stop the surge from getting even worse? Yeah. And I think, I mean, Herein lies the, the 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 politics of it, right? Because Hong Kong is not its own government; it's totally beholden to China. In the past two years, we've seen the mainland encroach um, in in every way, like never before. And so, the Hong Kong government really has no space to move here, change their policy, or adapt. They still have to hold on to zero COVID. So, the focus mm. is building isolation facilities. It is trying to get like mass testing going, all this stuff that we really saw in Wuhan in China, you know, at the start of the pandemic. But the problem is it doesn't really work in a city which doesn't really have that mentality or, or mindset. What, what do you mean by that? Like, t tell me more about that. If you walk around in, in Hong Kong today, I mean, people are still out. They're still doing their thing. I mean, they, they, they cannot be convinced to just sort of stay at home and, and comply, right? You have like a ton of expats here who have seen their family members get COVID and not be very sick and are like, I don't know why I should be in an isolation facility. I just kind of want to move on with my life. Mm. You have people who really hate the government or, or don't trust them. So they don't want to use contact tracing apps. So you, you can't really get that kind of level of compliance, right? And and it's also a city where business is still going on. The stock market is still open. Construction is still running. I just don't think there's political will on the elite level or on the ground level for a full scale lockdown, the way we're seeing in other Chinese cities. So we're sort of left with the worst of two worlds. We're not hmm. moving to mitigating COVID to learn to quote unquote live with the virus, but zero COVID is not working as well. So they're just stuck. 
After the break, we ask Shabani about the political stakes for Hong Kong's independence and how this COVID surge is testing its controversial leader. We'll be right back. Part of what has made the pandemic response so complicated in Hong Kong is that it has this ambiguous legal status. It's kind of part of China and kind of not. And that two systems, one country policy has meant that there are questions about what Hong Kong's leader, Carrie Lam, is even allowed to do. Throughout the um, more than two years of fighting the epidemic, the Hong Kong SAL government has put in all the necessary resources and efforts in order to keep Hong Kong people safe. Carrie Lam, who is Hong Kong's chief executive, has been coming out to give these daily press briefings to the Hong Kong people. We are still seeing a very high level of cases in many of the countries and places. And unfortunately, despite the past successes, Hong Kong on this occasion is no exception. The Hong Kong government has basically said that a lockdown is is not feasible, but Quite frankly, they've been flip-flocking so much on policy that like people don't really believe at this point what's going to happen or not going to happen. So even if Carrie Lam gets up there every morning and says, you know, we're not going to have a lockdown, we're not going to have a lockdown, we still go to the grocery store and see people preparing for a lockdown because people just don't don't trust the government's word at this point. And I think the policy has just been like really confused and, and people are just worried and, and, and pretty panicked, I would say. This really seems like a test for not just Hong Kong, but also for Carrie Lam. Can you talk about how she's navigating this and how this COVID surge is intersecting with some of the other challenges or controversies that have been going on in Hong Kong? Yeah, so the, there was meant to be a election. I mean, it's not really an election. It's more like a selection from a very small committee of the person who would be Hong Kong's new chief executive. And that has been delayed because of COVID. But I, I mean, I think it is almost certain that, you know, through everything over the past two years, including the protests, including the national security law, including all the crises that Hong Kong has had to deal with, I think this is the one that will really affect Carrie Lam and, and her political viability here um, beyond this year, right? I mean, I think mm-hmm. coming into this year, a lot of people really thought that because she had pulled off the national security law and because, you know, protests are, are gone in Hong Kong, basically, and because the, the, the city is quiet, civil society is dead, that it might lead to another term for her. She might have been seen as having very successfully implemented that. But I think that's no longer the case just because COVID has been such a disaster and such an embarrassment. I mean, if you think about the timing, this has also come, it it sort of overshadowed before the war in Ukraine, it it overshadowed the Beijing Olympics, right? Because a lot of the reporting coming out of China around, around Asia was this kind of split screen between you know, the Olympics in Beijing and this COVID crisis in, in Hong Kong that was looming. And, you know, it's not just about Hong Kong. Like now you see this huge outbreak over the border in Shenzhen, right? And like everyone's blaming Hong Kong for having caused that or having started it. Xi Jinping a few weeks ago had a directive to the Hong Kong government that was publicized in, in state media saying that the Hong Kong government needed to do everything that they possibly could and prioritize COVID yeah. beyond anything else or before anything else. And I think the worry is that obviously these outbreaks in China now that are getting more and more out of control as well, if there's a link between that and having originated in Hong Kong, that that will be very, very bad for, for the Hong Kong government. 
As the Chinese government has been so adamant that everything possible needs to be done in Hong Kong to quash this surge, is there a concern that that could really result in further degrading personal liberties and civil rights for Hong Kongers? Yeah, I mean, I think the worry is that, you know, more and more and more, the the government in Hong Kong has just no no accountability. There's just like no check on their power, right? I was having a, a conversation with somebody who was once active in Hong Kong's democracy scene. And the person was saying, you know, if, if this was a few years ago, you know, we would be in the legislative council, the parliament, like every day asking the government what they were doing. Hmm. We would be criticizing them. We, we, we would be slamming them on the number of deaths and bodies that are stacking up. But none of this is happening. It's totally quiet. There's no constituent to to push back, to say, hey, rethink your policy. This is not working. And, and the reason you're not hearing that outcry is basically because everyone has to stay home, right? Because of COVID. And also because all the pro-democracy leaders are in jail or in exile, right? So like mm. Hong Kong has, has no more opposition. So that opposition, with it being totally wiped out, that opposition can't hold this government to account and say, you know, what you've done here is, is a mess. It's a, it's a huge failure of policy because uh, there is no check and balance, right? We, we had an election that was a quote-unquote patriots-only election where everybody first had to swear loyalty to the Communist Party and, and Hong Kong before running. So, you know, you don't have that, those checks and balances anymore um, after the, the, the sort of political crushing of, of Hong Kong. So China's been able to come in as, as sort of the only savior here, uh, sending in you know, medics and, and volunteers and, and carers for elderly homes and all these things are just tying the mainland and Hong Kong, you know, even closer together than, than, than before in a way that's very, you know, stark and, and very visceral and, and very clear for everyone to see. When Carrie Lam uh, announced a lot of these emergency measures a couple of weeks ago, she said, you know, with this emergency mindset, we, we can't be, be wasting time on legal issues or we can't be wasting time on like worrying about privacy mm. or worrying about all these things. We, we just need to make sure that COVID is, COVID is fought, right? So for example, under one country, two systems, uh, if, if you're a Chinese doctor or a nurse, you have to reapply in Hong Kong to get different permits and different licenses, right? But they've waived all of that uh, to be able to to get these people in into Hong Kong uh, quickly. And obviously, while that is needed at this moment, it is it is very much needed. I think the fear is that they will use this as precedent to later say, with lawyers, maybe there's no need for them to re-register in Hong Kong and retrain. Oh, with accountants, there's no need. And, and that further and further erodes the one country, two, two systems principles, right? I mean, more and more, it's looking like a full integration of, of the two places. Shabani, thank you so much. Thank you. Shabani Matani is the Hong Kong bureau chief for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Alexis Diao and mixed by Sean Carter. It was edited by Maggie Penman. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. <laughs>